This is the full story. I'm Tom Couser. I'm going to ask a question that you might think is rather odd. What's in your trash or your recycling bin right now? Take a quick look. What do you see? Do you see trash or do you see materials that really could be used to create a work of art? For Connecticut-based artist Stephanie Hongo, garbage is her medium. She's a trash sculptor and transforms discarded materials into fanciful images of animals and mythical creatures, elephants, octopuses, dragons, even a phoenix. And they really look like magic that come to life. But these sculptures are actually bits of wood, plastic, and any other old thing that she finds to create her one-of-a-kind pieces. And Stephanie Hongo joins me now on Zoom to talk about her creative process. Welcome to The Full Story. Thank you so much for having me. Certainly. And and maybe I shouldn't be calling what you use garbage and trash. You really don't see it that way, do you? No, not, I mean, not especially. I would say that uh, for me, it's a lot of inspiration that I find in the stuff that I use and what it could potentially be used for. When did that come to mind? What inspired you to take what most of us picture as just stuff to throw out and turn it into these wonderful sculptures? Well, actually, it's a very long story. A lot of it has to do actually with necessity. I had a job that I loved very much for many, many years, but I started to gradually begin to dislike it and then um, just decided to leave all at once. So I didn't have anything coming in for income. And I had been working as an artist previously. So I thought to myself, maybe I could just do freelance work, but I didn't have the money for supplies. So I was thinking to myself, well, trash is in surplus and it's free. I've seen quite a few upcycle artists do the same thing. So I just figured, you know, I know I can do some version of this. So I gave it a try and loved it immediately. What was the first piece of uh, art? What was the first work that you created using those materials? It was a stag, actually, and I, I painted it blue, and I named it Yondu. <laughs> That's another question I'd like to ask you in a few minutes about the names you give to your works. At first glance, the pieces, of course, they look like animals. Your phoenix, for example, uh, speaking of names, I think Ferrocena Joy is what you named the phoenix. Is that yes. right? A closer look, and people might see individual pieces, the things that make up the whole work. Uh, buttons, plastic forks, there are knives, thin metal strips, pipes that are curled to create the bird's elaborate tail in that uh, instance. Which do you want a viewer to see? Uh, the the pieces, the complete work of art? When you're putting it together, is that uh, something you think about? Yeah, I would say that my intention in my style and the work that I make is to have it resemble the animal first and foremost. If I'm making, say, like a lion head, I want it to look like a sculpture of a lion when the person looks at it initially. But I understand that because I'm using such odd materials, there is this look that it's kind of off a little bit. And I like the idea that then the person has to look a little bit closer to see all the individual components. And I do like to use things that still maintain their familiarity after they've been painted. So like a toothbrush, for example, even after that's painted, it still maintains the shape of a toothbrush. So when you look at it closely, you can make that out. How does your process work? Do you decide that you want to create for instance, a lion or a stag or a phoenix, and then you find the materials to accomplish that? Or do you look at materials that you have and something comes to mind that you think these uh, odds and ends might work? 
So very early on into this, I would say that there were a few builds that were inspired by the materials, but essentially everything I make now, I plan ahead of time. I decide that I'm going to make a lion, I'm going to make a sea turtle, whatever it's going to be. And I set out to find the appropriate materials to put it together. Let's talk about the names. You mentioned uh, one before. I think you've got a a small fish called, uh, spelled M-O-C-H-I, said Mokai, Moki? Mochi, yeah. Mochi of the, <laughs> the Phoenix, Serafina Joy, and a yeah. chameleon named Neville. Mm-hmm. What's your process for naming uh, the creatures? Does that come after the work is done and you get a, a look at what you've created? You know, honestly, it sometimes it depends. Sometimes, I know it sounds silly, but sometimes they just name themselves. Sometimes when I'm making it, I'm just like, oh, God. like Neville. Neville looked like a Neville to me <laughs> as I was building him. But there's other times where a name won't come to me right away. And I will sit down and I'll think about what the animal is. And maybe like I'll look up gemstones that I think are colored like the animal or whatever it might be. And, and just kind of do like a little bit of a dive on the internet to try to find something that might be appropriate without it being too on the nose. I really care very much about their names. So I I like to put some thought into it, at least. The material that you use, where does, I mean, we've said it's garbage, it's trash, it's odds and ends like that. Where do you actually get it? So it's trash in the sense that it is no longer being used and people no longer want it. But I don't go dumpster diving ever. Typically how it works is it's usually like an interception of me taking it from friends and family before they're about to toss it. Early on, I did a lot of just kind of open-ended collecting where I was just like, if you have something and it seems interesting, if it seems like it might be something I could use, give it to me, I'm happy to take it. But then I very quickly had to put the brakes on that because everyone has trash and it would be a situation where I was just showing up at my house and it was just bags of trash on my doorstep. So I had to basically put out a message to all my friends and family saying no more unsolicited garbage collections. But occasionally there are things that I do want all of the time. I love basketballs. They work very much like skin. They hold paint great. And once it's deflated and it can no longer be blown up again, it's kind of useless. So I'll always take basketballs. I love vinyl tubing. My boyfriend works for HVAC. So we get a lot of vinyl tubing and like copper pipe insulation that I use a lot. So there's certain things that I have specific areas that I can collect from and that I always want. But for the most part, it was from friends and family early on. And I've I've saved up enough at this point where I can kind of keep building from that for the foreseeable future. I was going to ask you how you store all of the materials. I was picturing a barn that was, you know, piled high with this sort of thing, but you've headed that off at the past, it sounds like. So I have my whole basement basically <laughs> dedicated to my my workspace and for holding all of the trash in the other room, actually, where from where I'm sitting right now. It's essentially a trash heap of plastics just that I sift through whenever I'm in the middle of making something. Let's talk about the term upcycle. Is that the term you would use to describe your art, upcycled uh, materials that's applied to, I guess, lots of things, things that are either outdated, uh, unused, not necessarily trash, and to things that people do throw away, garbage? Yeah, absolutely. I do use the word. I, there's so many different terms for what I do, and there's so many people out there that do some version of it. So upcycling is certainly appropriate for what I do and for what all these other people do. I like the term trash sculptor just because I think that it has such a, you know, such a basic, unimpressive connotation, calling it trash sculpting, but then looking at what it actually looks like. I like I like the juxtaposition of the impressive look of of a very plain and very kind of gross terminology for it, but it's called so many different things. Upcycling is absolutely appropriate. 
Another term that gets used is eco-artist. I yep. think in a People magazine article, you said you don't necessarily see yourself as a true eco-artist. Why not? Well, because I use spray paint in my work, there's no way that I could completely say that I am an eco-artist. It's not green. I do use chemicals that are, are not organic, but obviously it is keeping these things from a landfill by me using them for art. So that is a lovely byproduct of what I do, but being an eco-artist is not the goal and intention of what I'm doing. The goal and intention is being an artist that is using a very interesting source and a recyclable source to make beautiful work. So if it comes to the point down the line where there's a paint that's appropriate, or I decide that I no longer really feel like the painting part is a necessary step to my work, then I could potentially be an eco-artist down the line. But right now, I really love the process that I'm doing, and I'm really happy with the result. So for the time being, that title I don't think is totally appropriate for me. How long have you been working up in this medium? It will be six years in June, actually. Has your process evolved or changed since you uh, first started? Oh, absolutely. I, the first piece that I made, I wasn't really a, you know familiar with how to do this and what the best fastening methods would be, if I should use glue, if I should use screws, if there's tape, whatever it might be. So I used pretty much every method of fastening that I could think of and very quickly discovered that a drill and screws was the best way to do it. And ever since then, that's basically been my main method. Occasionally I'll use glue if I have to, but that for sure was something that evolved a lot. And then just the quality of the work, in my opinion, I think has gotten so much better. There's a, a lion that I made very early into my career, and then one I made just a couple of years later, and the difference is huge. Where can people get a look at the work you've done? You've got a website, of course. So where can people get a look at it? I do. I have my official website is uh, sugarfox.net, but I always suggest if anyone's interested in purchasing work or if you want to stay as up to date as possible, that my social media is the best place to go. I don't really update my website a ton, but my Instagram, I post every week, multiple times a week. Same thing with my Facebook. On Instagram, I'm at sugarfox underscore art. And on Facebook, you can also find me at sugarfox. Do you have a favorite piece that you've worked on over the years? Or is or is the one you're working on at any present time the favorite? Well, it does change quite a bit. It changes. I've got a, a few favorites. Um, I made a dragon, a Chinese dragon that I named Tao that I was really fond of. That's a big piece that I, I loved very much. I just made a female deep sea angler fish that I named Lilith. Love that piece too. It has a light on it that actually works. Very proud of that piece. There's been so many. They change, truly, it changes probably weekly. You mentioned the the dragon being a big piece. You mean in terms of size? Yes. How yeah, big is that, it? It's um that one's four feet tall. I want to say the biggest one that I've done I think was five feet by five feet. It was a, a giant elephant head that I named Jericho. <laughs> Are your pieces of all different sizes something that big, or a few of them look like something you could you know hang on the wall quite comfortably absolutely yeah there's a huge range in size um, the majority i would say are closer to like maybe between 20 and 12 inches somewhere around there something more manageable but mm -hmm. there's times where i've had commissions in the past i don't take commissions anymore but previously there was some that they wanted a big dynamic piece for their wall which is the, the case with jericho that one was a commission from a while ago and why don't you take commissions anymore there's a couple reasons for the most part it's because 
the necessity wasn't there anymore. Very early on in my career, commissions were necessary for me to sell work, but I was able to build enough of a following that now I can just sort of make what's fun to me and put it up for sale. And my sales have been consistent enough that the commissions aren't necessary. And I think for most artists, commissions tend to be a little bit more you know, there's a lot more rigid lines in what you're making. You have to be interested in what the client thinks and hope that your vision and their vision mesh together. It can be stressful at times. So um, there's a lot more freedom if you if you can afford to avoid commissions. What are you working on right now? Actually, I'm about to make a sea turtle, which is the first sea turtle I've made. I've had quite a few suggestions and recommendations and requests for sea turtles. The only reason why I haven't made one so far is just the shape of the animal. My work is basically relief sculpture. So just the fact that a sea turtle is so flat and wide, it makes it much harder to envision a good pose for it because I didn't want to have it jutting out of the board too far. So I'm just going to do an aerial view of one. I think I've decided on a way to do it that I'm going to be pretty proud of. Stephanie Hongo is a Connecticut-based trash sculptor. And I want to say thank you so much for spending some time with us today. And it was fun looking at your work uh, as well online. And perhaps we can get a look at it in person someday. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me. Certainly. Innovative entrepreneurs use all sorts of uh, what many people consider waste to create new products. Adam Kay is one of them. He and his brother co-founded The Spare Food Company. They're based in Dobbs Ferry, New York. And they take what they call unused ingredients to create new food products. For example, they take whey, the byproduct of Greek yogurt, and use that to create their sparkling tonic drinks. And Adam Kay joins us via Zoom. Welcome to The Full Story. Thank you, Tom. Really good to be here. Thanks for having us on. Sure. Let's start with uh, the name of your company, the Spare Food Company. That sounds certainly a lot more appetizing than uh, Waste Food Company or something like that. Yeah, I think you've you've started at a great place. Um, well, firstly, I can't take credit for for the name. Uh, my brother and co-founder Jeremy um, is the one who came up with that name. And yes, I, w- words are very important. Uh, hopefully, over the course of this conversation, you'll notice that I don't actually use the words food waste. Um, spare, as in extra and available for use. Spare also as in to leave unharmed, to spare something. And and really that is at the core of, of what we're doing in terms of, of our responsibility to, to leave this planet uh, unharmed or to reverse the damage, actually. So, yeah, the, 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 the title of the company, the name of the company is very intentional. And I think it's also aspirational and positive, which is something that's so important. According to your website, it says um, few are focused on reducing the amount of waste we create in the first place. This is where Spare Food begins. At the beginning, preventing food from being wasted by shifting our perspective and making the overlooked essential. That's that's a very different way of, of looking at um, what many of us call waste or garbage. Yeah, um, it is. And again, I... As I said, you know, we don't speak about food waste. We talk about wasted food, right? And just changing the order of those two words. Mm-hmm. One is about waste. One is about food. Nobody wants to eat waste. That's number one. Uh, and and the minute we start 
thinking of these co-products, I don't even look at them as byproducts, as co-products. The minute we start thinking of them as waste, uh, we've, we've lost the battle before we've even started, right? And for us, it is, it's the, the core of the company is to identify these ingredient streams. They are ingredients. Uh, we view them as ingredients and, and treat them as such. So again, that is, that's what we're doing. And, and you also pick up on the important point that, you know, preventing waste from before it happens uh, is really critical. Uh, and that's really the, the, where we play at the spare food company. Uh, a few years ago, in the early 20 teens, the EPA put out what they referred to as the food waste recovery hierarchy. And basically it's an inverted triangle with the apex of the triangle is now the bottom is landfill. And the top of the triangle, the widest part of the inverted triangle is source reduction. And what's actually very interesting, and, and basically it is listing a hierarchy of, of uh, approaches to minimizing or, or reducing waste of, of food in our food system. What's interesting is composting is just right above landfill. Um, we can all feel very good about composting, but it's actually pretty far down the hierarchy in terms of, of uh, what we should be doing. Where spare food is playing is right at the top, is in prevention. Anything other than prevention is diversion, and we want to actually get to the food before it actually needs to be diverted. So it's really dealing with the problem at its source as opposed to the symptoms that uh, that we exactly. have to confront it, down the road. Exactly, or propping up a broken system or or exactly being, being um, reactive as opposed to proactive. Uh, you credited your brother with uh, the name Spare Food Company, your co-founder. Could you tell me about your career paths? How did they come to cross at the Spare Food Company? How did this come to pass that you got together with your brother? Yeah, well, obviously, we share a lot of uh, family values, number one. We are fourth-generation food entrepreneurs that we know of, uh, going back to South Africa, where we uh, were both born. I was the one who was crazy enough to make a career out of the restaurant industry. So I've been a, uh, a chef for much of my professional, my adult life, um, and spent the majority of that time actually working at uh, Blue Hill Restaurant in New York with Chef Dan Barber. I was part of the team that opened up Blue Hill at Stone Barns in Westchester County. And it was really my experience there working as a chef in a restaurant on a farm and having this incredibly close proximity to the production of our food um, that really started to open my eyes to what, what doesn't show up at our receiving doors at a restaurant on a daily basis. You know, when you can look outside your window and you can see, I don't know, rows of, of broccoli growing and you realize that you can actually barely see the broccoli because there's all these incredible leaves that are edible. Well, why can't we get them into the kitchen, right? So that was, for me, the start of this kind of um, uh, consciousness building of, of, of what is overlooked in our food system. I got really into that through Blue Hill, through a couple of uh, uh, pop-up restaurants called Wasted that we, um, <laughs> that we created and ran in New York and in London. And, um, and I came back from those uh, experiences just really convinced that there's this incredible business opportunity around latent value in our food system and that business can be a force for good. 
parallel to me is my brother, my older brother, Jeremy, who came out of the apparel industry originally and actually spent many years of his early career working at Patagonia mm -hmm. and was part of the team that actually developed Patagonia's organic cotton line and all of their reclaimed fleece back in the 90s. And then he went on to do a whole bunch of other things and consulting and working with uh, with uh, organic food startups as part of his consulting work as he kind of moved away from the apparel world. And when I came back from these pop-ups in London, I started talking to him and we realized that there was a there there. And um, and that was really the, the opportunity that we saw is, is there's latent value in our food system. How can we capture it at scale? And how can we specifically use my lens as a chef to use culinary innovation to put that food back into the food system as food for people? And I always say, if you know, I think in culinary metaphors as a, as a chef, I said to everything seems to be food in my mind. But I always say, if you put Blue Hill and you put Patagonia in a blender, the smoothie that you get out of that is the spare food company. Sounds tasty. <laughs> um, uh, maybe we could talk specifically about um, about your drinks. You say you yeah. upcycle way to make your drinks. How did you come to uh, to use that as your natural resource, so to speak? As our ingredient stream. Yeah, great mm -hmm. question. Um, w when we launched the company and we started thinking about uh, product development. Um, I kept coming back to whey as an ingredient that I'd worked with in the kitchen um, for many years. And the more I started working with whey, number one is I realized that it was a delicious product. It um, had incredible applications in a culinary setting. Um, but as I dug a little bit further, I started to learn specifically around acid whey, which is the co-product of, of yogurt manufacturing. Um, that here in New York State, where we are founded and where we are based, um, the issue of whey is a very, very um, uh, significant issue. Seventy percent of, of strained yogurt, Greek-style yogurt in this country, is produced in New York State, and there's about a billion pounds of whey that is produced that we know of that is produced and discarded. I'm sorry, uh, I was going to say billion with a B. B, wow. not, not a million, a billion pounds of whey that is produced and for the most part discarded in New York State alone. Take your strained yogurt brand of choice. I'm not going to mention any names, but they all pretty much, you know, the, the same math applies. Roughly three to four cups of milk gives you one cup of that lovely, delicious, thick, creamy strained yogurt. The other two to three cups of liquid that is strained out to to produce that incredible product is whey that is seen that 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 side stream is seen as a waste stream in the dairy industry it's also a major headache for uh, yogurt manufacturers because it can't just be flushed down the uh down the the drain there's a whole host of environmental issues associated with the disposal of whey so it has a low ph it acidifies groundwater it has live culture so essentially it has to get neutralized some of it goes into animal feed, some of it goes into methane digesters, very expensive technology. Very little of it is going back into the food system as food for people. And to me, it just as the more I started thinking about it and working with whey, it just seems so emblematic as an ingredient stream, so emblematic of, um, of what is so inefficient in our food system. And the fact that you can be milking cows 
and everything, all the inputs that go into milking those cows to support a multi-billion dollar industry, the Greek yogurt industry, right? And that you're essentially only using 25% of that raw material to me is is really, as I say, is is so emblematic of of all that is wrong in our food system and how we've gotten to the point where we really just kind of cherry pick our way through what is valuable and what isn't. Um, and so whey was just a, a fantastic opportunity for us to to tell that story, not to mention people have been consuming whey for millennia. Hippocrates wrote about whey two and a half thousand years ago as a, as a health uh, serum. Um, it's delicious. It's like this powerhouse ingredient full of electrolytes, B vitamins, protein. Um, and, and that's how we ended up on that as our first ingredient stream. Was it difficult to insert yourself into that, uh, that stream uh, from, uh, uh, from the production of the Greek yogurt to wherever it wound up as, as trash? Yeah. Good, good question. No, we, we fortunately we we partnered with a small uh, craft yogurt manufacturer who's very nimble and actually had an interest in finding a, a another outlet for for their way for their co uh, product. When you are dealing with something that is being perceived as not being of food grade, let's say suddenly you have to institute new SOPs and you need to maintain its its food safety has to be kept refrigerated and how do we transport it and we have to get it to where we need it to be you know way is not like you know we're not making a drink that is 85 percent water where we can just turn on a tap there is some logistical you know fancy footwork that has to get done uh to be able to to close the loop so to speak on this when the loop has been broken but we've managed we found the right partners and we insist on paying for it there is value to this. And if we're going to be talking about lost value in our food system, we need to recognize that value. So we get it from our yogurt manufacturing partners to our manufacturing facility, which interestingly enough is actually in a brewery, although it's a non-alcoholic drink, the process that we developed actually fit beautifully in a craft brewery. So spare tonic is crafted and brewed uh, in Brooklyn in a, in a craft brewery. In the production of your sparkling tonic, spare sparkling tonic, are there byproducts that you have to deal with? Nothing. That is the most incredible part of this product is that, okay, I'm not going to say nothing. There is sometimes a little bit, maybe, you know, out of a, you know, a 1,500-gallon batch, maybe there's two gallons that gets left in the pipe when we're, when we're canning it, right? There's that kind of thing. But in terms of of anything that is getting lost along the way, absolutely not. There's nothing that's lost at all. And also, what I want to say is, we're not paying lip service to to the fact that this is a whey beverage. Anywhere, depending on the flavor, and we have five different flavors. Anywhere from about eighty-five percent up to about ninety-two percent of every can is made up of that yogurt whey. So, so we are using a lot of whey, and nothing is getting wasted in the process. Are other parts of your company, uh, you, you've spoken to byproducts, are other parts of your company uh, environmentally conscientious? Um, do you strive to keep your carbon footprints uh, pretty small yeah. or as small as you can? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is that is um, the heart and soul of what we're doing. Um, for example, uh, our choice to put spare tonic into an aluminum can as opposed to, uh, well, firstly, plastic was not... Uh, wasn't even on the you know on the table 
um, but an aluminum can over a glass bottle. Um, the aluminum recycling uh, process is incredibly fast. Uh, these cans can get back into the into the the stream within about I think sixty five days after recycling. Aluminum is much lighter uh, in terms of transporting as opposed to a heavy glass bottle. Um, yeah, across the board, the packaging we use. Uh, you know, even when we're sending out samples, let's say in the in the insulation materials, for example, in our in the boxes we use, uh, our business cards are made with uh, out of um, uh, paper that's made with recycled cotton, actually. So yeah, this is something again. You know, you take people who came out of the Patagonias and the Blue Hills of the world. This is this stuff's in our DNA, and um, we're not perfect. We're constantly trying, and we're constantly looking for for ways to improve. Uh, as we like to say, we're incrementalists, and we're always uh, there's always room for improvement. How do you encourage your customers, the consumers, to actually uh, put that can into a recycling bin as opposed to? on the roadside or what have you can you can yeah. you even do that yeah no that that is obviously there's a there's a certain point at which you lose control right um i would like to think and and again i i you know i i would like to think that the kind of person who is reaching for a product like spare tonic who is aware of upcycled food who is aware of uh the impacts of food waste and climate change let's say um, is also the kind of person who probably wouldn't just leave this sitting on a park bench or or a sidewalk, uh, but would you know go the extra mile if needed to to recycle that can. Do you know if other companies uh, are following your lead? I'm wondering too. Could your production model be adopted by by larger companies to help reduce the amount of of uh, way that has to be treated? Yeah, I mean, look, we we are aware and we know quite well a few other companies who are playing in the in the way space. God knows there's enough of this liquid to to go around uh, and then some literally oceans of it. They're getting in the way, so to speak. Exactly. I'm sorry. Well, it's, I should have started this conversation by saying that absolutely no way no puns are allowed. It's, it's one of the bylines of our company, actually. No, we... Um, you know, there is, I, I think, ultimately, what will be interesting is to see how the really big players in the dairy scene start looking at the kind of work that we're doing and, and realizing that, you know, whatever the large company is, might not be interested in getting into the carbonated beverage world, but that there are people out there who are looking to innovate using their side streams and that they are revenue streams that, that they're not leveraging and taking advantage of. Any other products that uh, Spare is considering? Uh, not necessarily the carbonated beverage type, but not necessarily based on whey? Yeah, great question. Um, firstly, there are other whey uh, extension, line extensions in the works as well, um, whether beverages or not. Uh, it's just such a great ingredient. But yeah, we, we are actually... Um, we are working on a new product that is just starting to see the light of day. And that's really based around farm surplus and identifying particular crops in particular regions, certain times of the year that we can actually start capturing again at scale and what we're calling edible surplus, whether it's absolutely perfect or whether it's ugly or damaged or misshapen or whatever, uh, for whatever reason that would not have been intended for human consumption. 
and have working on a, uh, a vegetable-based product uh, around that that will actually be specifically this product line uh, specifically sold into institutional food service so large corporate dining rooms uh, college campuses schools etc is this kind of thinking considering the environment when starting a business is this a trend or is this becoming fundamental to a business practice absolutely there are many companies out there that have been working with social or, or environmental consciousness in mind, um, specifically within the world of upcycling. And that is a term that is now gaining currency. A company like, like the Spare Food Company is really at the forefront of that. There's now an upcycled food association, a trade organization of over 200 companies that was started by little upstart companies like the Spare Food Company, and now some of the big multinational food companies are actually signing on to become members of the Upcycled Food Association. These large companies are starting to look at their own co-products that they're generating in their, in their uh, food manufacturing processes. It, it's interesting, upcycling as a term and as a, as a category for a few years now has been mentioned, you know, Whole Foods men mentions it as a as a top trend of this year and last year and the year before. A bunch of different, um, you know, you, you read trade publications, everyone's talking about upcycling as the new thing. Number one is I don't think it's a trend. Uh, I think it's here to stay. And, and quite frankly, we don't have, we, we have no choice but to be thinking along these lines. And, and really, to be honest, I think companies that are not thinking about this you know, I, I think that they're going to go the way of the dinosaur long term because th this is this is an imperative at this point. Adam Kay is the co-founder, along with uh, his brother Jeremy, of The Spare Food Company based in Dobbs Ferry, New York. Adam, thanks so much for your time today and, and sharing uh, your experience of getting The Spare Food Company up and running. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you. An upcycle challenge is underway in Danbury, Connecticut. Restore, that's spelled R-E, capital S-T-O-R-E, is a thrift warehouse run by Housatonic Habitat for Humanity, which is calling on local designers, artists, and DIYers to upcycle an item from their store. Next Saturday, during their Earth Day Upcycle Challenge reveal events, the renewed items will go on sale at the store, all the proceeds will go to help build affordable housing in local communities. April Vandernol is the manager of ReStore in Danbury, and she joins me via Zoom. Welcome to the full story. Thank you. Certainly. Tell us, what is ReStore? Again, capital S, which gives it sort of a double entendre there. Yes, ReStore is a thrift warehouse that is run by Habitat for Humanity affiliates. They're an international organization, but each Habitat affiliate runs independently, and um, most of them have restores affiliated with the local Habitat for Humanity. So restores sell used furniture, home goods, building supplies, appliances, all sorts of things that are donated 
And then we resell them to the community and all the proceeds go back to that particular Habitat for Humanity affiliate. Ours is the Housatonic Habitat for Humanity. And our territory uh, covers Litchfield and Fairfield counties. So you mentioned donated items. Are these new items, um, used items in, in sort of reusable condition? Uh, what sort of things would people see if they walked into the Danbury uh, Restore? Yes, so some of the items are used. They are donated by local families, and some of them are not used, and they're donated by businesses. So if they have excess inventory and they want to donate to us, they can do that. Or if they have some things that are slightly damaged but still usable, they'll donate them to us. If a customer came in, what they would find in our particular restore is a lot of furniture, um, home goods such as home decor, dishware, light fixtures, lamps, doors, windows, sinks, tile. Uh, we even have a large shipment of stone, um, pallets of stone that was donated to us recently. So someone could come in here and do a total DIY project of their own, you know, build their own patio. They could redo their kitchen with supplies bought here, or they could furnish their home. We actually do home pickups. So people, if they're moving or downsizing and they have furniture they want to donate, we'll actually go out and pick it up at their homes. And these items sound like the types of things that could wind up in a landfill or on the side of the road where people uh, may just dump things they don't need anymore but don't know how to get rid of them, things that are perfectly serviceable. But uh, by restore taking them, it, it keeps them from being waste junk that needs to be uh, dealt with. That's absolutely correct. It, it really does serve a dual purpose, the restores. You know, not only are we able to make money from the items and put that back into our mission of providing affordable home ownership for hardworking families, we also divert a lot of things from landfills. So it, it is good for the environment, um, but it's also good for the community because, like I said, our mission is to make affordable home ownership more accessible to hardworking families that are struggling and just can't get over that hump. Do you also find materials that you put in, in your restore through what I understand is something called your deconstruction service? Well, we do reach out to our local contractors to see if they um, have any items they want to donate that, you know, if they're, if they're doing a remodel at someone's home and someone has perfectly good kitchen cabinets or appliances, they can reach out to us instead of them having to put these cabinets in a dumpster and send them to the landfill. Um, they can call us and we will go pick them up and bring them here and resell them to someone who is on a budget and needs a more affordable option than brand new kitchen cabinets. We also have a lot of community partners like tile shops and, um, you know, door and window companies that will send us things if they 
have a large order and maybe something was wrong with it, it was the wrong size, they'll send it to us. So we, we do work with contractors and building supply companies. Even Lowe's sends us some of their returns. So we have a wide uh, range of places that we get the merchandise and, you know, again, are able to divert from landfills. What about merchandise that does not uh, get sold? Or do you pretty much turn over everything that comes through your doors? We try to turn over everything that comes through our doors. Our goal is to be able to resell the items. So we try to ensure that what we accept as donations is something that can be resold because it doesn't do us you know, any good to take it in and take up space on our floor and then not be able to sell it. So we do pretty much resell everything that's given to us, even if we have to just mark it way down at the end of the day. How much money do you hope to raise this year through Restore? Our sales at the Restore, after we pay our bills and and salaries and things like that, I would say it's somewhere between 800,000 and a, and a million in one year. And that might sound like a lot, but when you're talking about building homes and refurbishing homes and doing home repairs for um, elderly people and veterans, which is something else we do, it doesn't go a long way. So we, we don't only rely on the sales here at the Restore, although it's a big source of funding for Habitat for Humanity. Um, we also do other fundraising. We have a big gala every year. We do apply for grants and we do get donations from, you know, generous people in our community. So we do reach out in several different ways. But if I could just mention a couple more things about what our mission is, I briefly talked about doing home repairs for the elderly who are aging in place and and can't afford to update their home. We do home repairs to keep them safe and, you know, and keep them able to live in their own home. We also do that for veterans. And we are, we have a big program right now that we're doing where we help elderly people and veterans with spring cleanups. We have a lot of great volunteers who go out and do these spring cleanups. We have a lot of outreach in our community and we try to give back. That's part of our mission here at Habitat for Humanity. I'll mention that uh, if we're hearing uh, some other sounds and voices and closing doors, uh, you're (laughs) speaking to us uh, from the store in Danbury, which is a very busy place. So that would explain uh, some of the extraneous sounds that folks are hearing, which is certainly not a problem. One of the things that you do that we mentioned before is the Earth Day Upcycle Challenge Reveal, which is happening uh, next Saturday. That's when these items will be shown, and then uh, they'll go on sale to raise more money for your mission. Tell us more about the challenge. How does it work? We started the Upcycle Challenge three years ago. We wanted to have an event that would take place around Earth Day, Earth Week, as we call it here, and we wanted to bring awareness to people of how they can repurpose items and reuse items and use their imagination and take something old that might be discarded or thrown into a landfill and and how they could upcycle it, 
create something beautiful. So we wanted to present a way for our customers to get involved. So what we did is we came up with a plan. We would offer our customers the opportunity to come into our store and select materials to use. It could be anything. It could be furniture. It could be lamp, a chandelier, anything. They would take it home, upcycle it by either just making it a better piece than what it was when it came into the store, or they could change it into something totally different. And then they would give it back to us. And then we would have a big reveal and show the before and after photos. And we would display all of their final creations. And then we would resell them for a higher price than what we could have gotten before they had taken them home and repurposed them. Um, so for example, we had people make these lovely benches out of a bed frame. We've had people take um, metal that we were selling and make beautiful artwork out of it. We had someone take home some uh, several shovels and create a beautiful piece of art that would, you know, you could use in your garden. I saw that sort of an abstract um, patinaed piece of artwork. Yeah, I saw that. That, exactly. was, that was fascinating. Yeah, exactly. And then we've had people just transform beautiful furniture with just really creative artistry. So we've had a lot of fun doing it. We've had a, a big turnout for participants. And then when we have our big reveal, which we're doing on April 22nd, Saturday, we will have all of these items out on the showroom for people to purchase. And we have, um, and that'll other be, activities. um, that'll be at the store at the, at the restore location in Danbury. It will. We're located at 51 Austin street in Danbury. Um, that's our main showroom here, and that's where our sort of Earth Day events will take place. We'll have a big spring sale, and we'll have a lot of a lot of outdoor furniture. We will have gardening materials, spring-related artwork, and everything's going to be themed around spring and Earth Week. And we have one of our employees that will be doing a furniture workshop, a furniture painting workshop for those who might want to learn more about how to repaint furniture. April Vandernall is the manager of Restore in Danbury. Thank you so much for sharing with us uh, some uh, information about Habitat for Humanity, their mission, and about uh, the Upcycle Challenge, which hopefully will inspire some people to uh, try it themselves. I'm, I'm going to give it a shot. Thank you so much. And if I could just um, invite your listeners to come out Saturday. We would love to have them here. And if they want to learn more about the ReStore and about what we offer, they can go to our Instagram or Facebook, which is Danbury ReStore, or to our website, which is HousatonicHabitat.org. How about you? Have you done some upcycling? Let us know. Send us a picture. You can email us at tfs at wshu.org, leave a message on our Facebook page at Full Story Radio, or go to our Instagram, also called Full Story Radio. And that's it for our program for today, produced by Patu Sangare, Sophie Kamizzi, Cyana Bosch, and senior producer Ann Lopez. I'm Tom Kuzer. Thank you for listening to The Full Story.